Well, we return to our series today in 1 John. And 1 John is this poetic sermon that the Apostle John sends to the church, probably in Ephesus or the surrounding area. And it's a letter that is to warn the church and to guard them and protect them against uh, attack. But this attack isn't coming from external sources. It's not persecution. It's actually coming from an internal conflict. And the internal conflict has to do with false teachers. And these false teachers claim to have a special knowledge. Gnosticism, this special knowledge that gives them superior spiritual status. And that's really what John wants to warn the church about. So John says about these uh, Gnostic teachers that they claim to be in the light, but actually they're stumbling around in darkness. He says they claim to be without sin, but actually they're deceiving themselves. He says they claim to know God and have special knowledge of God, but they don't follow his commands. And they claim to love God, but they hate their brother and sister in Christ. And so John is basically saying this, no matter what they claim, their actions proved that they're not in fellowship with God and not in fellowship with the church. And that's so important. So test these people, see if their actions line up with their claims. And when they don't, you know that they're not in fellowship with you and they're not in fellowship with God. So John warns the church, but he also wants them to have a real confident faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want this false teaching to erode their confidence that they have in Jesus. And so he wants them to hold on to the truth about Jesus that the apostles and John has delivered once to the church. I wonder, and I want to ask you this question as we begin today's sermon. Have you ever felt like an inferior Christian? Have you ever felt that way? Because I think that's what John is addressing here. He's addressing the church that was being divided between those who claim to be superior Christians and those who were just the riffraff, the ordinary Christian in the pew. Have you ever felt like an inferior Christian? I think over the history of the church, there have been times and seasons where certain teachings have come forward that have created a kind of two-tier Christian system. Some teachings have come forward and said, you believe in Jesus, that's good. But now you need to do this to really be fully saved. Or you need to have this experience to experience full salvation. And I just want to say off the top, according to John and according to the Bible, that's simply not true. That if we believe in Jesus, John says, that's enough. We're safe. We're secure in Christ. And that's really important to hold on to. But there's also times, I think in my life at least, that unintentionally I have experienced being an inferior Christian, or at least the feeling of that. And that comes from reading and listening to inspirational testimonies. Now, I love inspirational stories. I love it when someone comes up and gives a testimony of how just God has transformed their lives, and it's important for us to share in that. But sometimes I know that I've listened to those stories and watched those stories and wondered, why doesn't that happen in my life too? And I begin to feel kind of like an inferior Christian. Remember growing up, two of my great heroes of the faith, one was George Mueller, who's connected to a lot of orphanages in England, and the other was Hudson Taylor, 
and who was a, a missionary to China. And I loved those stories. Another preacher that I absolutely uh, love reading about is Robert, Robert Murray McShane from Scotland. And I love these stories of the faith. Uh, Bill Buzan, who just passed away this, this last week, we'd often get together and talk about the heroes of the faith that we love to read about. But sometimes when I read about these heroes of the faith, I feel a little bit inferior. I mean, Robert Murray McShane, he knew Greek and Latin by the time he was five years old. And when I hear that, I go, what am I doing with my life? How do I possibly measure up? So unintentionally, sometimes we as a church create kind of super saints, and then the rest of us just kind of muddle along. Well, if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever felt like just part of the ordinary Christian in the pew and not a super saint, then 1 John is for you. This letter is written for you and for me as we feel that because John in this letter says, no, there aren't two classes of Christians. In fact, we are all one in Christ. And that's so important. And that's a, a central message that if we have believed in Jesus, that is enough. And so the very first section that was read to us today is this beautiful kind of poetic section, very poetic section that talks about children and young men and fathers. And I don't think we're meant to literally take these as three different age groups. I think what John is really driving at here is kind of different stages along the discipleship journey. There are stage when we're like little children, we're new believers. We want the milk of the word, so to speak. And then there's stages where we're like young men, young women, where we're developing our faith. And then there's a stage where we've been around faith for a long time and we have a maturity that's important. But really, this is what John, I think, is saying to the church through this poetic section. It's this, no matter who you are, no matter at what stage of the journey of discipleship that you find yourself, you need to know this. Your sins are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning and you have the strength to overcome the evil one. No matter where you're at, that's not left up to the super saints or the, or the very great Christians. No, all of us, all of us together from the very newborn babe in Christ Jesus to someone who has a great maturity and is an elder in the faith. All of us together, our sins have been forgiven. We know him who is from the beginning and we have the strength to overcome the evil one. Together we're in this. Uh, there's a commercial that's out there. You may have seen on TV. I've heard on the radio as well. It's a commercial for a bank. And the tagline for the commercial is this, you're richer than you think. And every time I hear that, I say out loud, no, I am not, <laughs> because I don't feel that I am. But I hear this when I read through this passage that was read for us. John saying to us ordinary Christians, you're stronger than you think, because the strength isn't dependent on how you feel. It's not even dependent on your experience. It's not even dependent on what you think you know and don't know. It's dependent fully on God's grace and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We know him who is from the beginning and we have the strength together to overcome the evil one. That's a great promise. 
So with this promise and with this assurance also comes a warning to the church in the next section of the passage that was read for us. And the warning is this. Having said all that, be careful that you don't fall in love with the world. Don't fall in love with the world. I think that's what these false teachers had fallen in love with a certain philosophy in the world and it had led them astray. And John says, don't fall in love with the world. Now, what are we talking about here? When we mention the world, the world, that word is used a number of times throughout the Bible. Well, it's pretty obvious that we're not talking about the natural earth. We're not talking about the natural world because we're reminded that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're reminded back in Genesis that God said of the earth, it is good. And so this is God's earth. We're not talking about that. We're also not talking about the world population because we're told very clearly God so loved the world. And in that sense, this world of humanity is what God loves. And we are to love the world as he did in that sense. So what are we talking about? Well, I think when John mentions the world here, just as Jesus does, especially in his prayer in John 17, we're talking about the systems, the values, the philosophies of a society that is opposed to God. Did you catch that? It's, it's the systems and values and philosophies of a society that is opposed to God. That's the world. And John says, don't fall in love with that. Don't fall in love with the world. And so throughout this passage, throughout this letter, John is saying, look, we can't live divided lives. We can't keep secret sins. We can't have hatred in our heart. And we can't be in love with the world and still have unbroken fellowship with God and with one another. So this is how we develop a confident faith then. Make sure that we don't live divided lives, that we don't keep secret sins, that we don't have hatred in our hearts toward our brothers and sisters, and that we don't fall in love with the world. That's what John is driving at here. Well, John lists for us in the next part of the passage, uh, three specific dangers, three specific temptations from the world system opposed to God. Three ways that we can fall in love with the world. And they're laid out for us fairly clearly. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I know people have had lots of different interpretations of what that means. And often we land on that word lust. And so right away we go to sexual temptation or sexual sins. And that's a very important topic and a very important thing that we need to be aware of that will tempt us to fall in love with the world. But I think actually these temptations are broader than just sexual sin. And actually, I think they're much more subtle and they entrap us in ways that we don't expect that aren't quite as obvious. Well, this word lust that we find used in the passage in 1 John is epithemia. It's a Greek word that really means strong desire. That's the idea here. And Jesus even uses this word, but in a positive sense. When he says to his disciples, I have a strong desire to eat this meal with you. That's the idea. So it can be used in a positive or a negative sense. So maybe another way to translate this is the way it's done in the New Living Translation. And that is to translate it as craving. I crave this. And so we translate these lines, a craving for physical pleasure or a craving for everything we see. 
And that might get us a little closer to what's happening here. But I think we get real clarity uh, when we look at these three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and actually compare them to the three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. And uh, track with me on this one and just see how it might open up our understanding of the temptations that we face. The first temptation, the craving of the flesh, as 1 John says it, I think really relates to that first temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness, which was to turn the stones into bread. Do you remember the story? Jesus is fasting in the wilderness 40 days. Uh, the devil comes along to tempt him. And his first temptation is simply this. Hey, Jesus, you've got an unbelievable amount of power. Why are you still hungry? I mean, do something useful with all that power. Be relevant. Satisfy your desires now. Turn these stones into bread. I know you can do it. That's the temptation. It's the temptation to instant gratification. Satisfy your desires now. Don't wait. Indulge your natural cravings right now. And as we think about it, I think that's a value that's very prevalent in our world. We have this kind of impatience, and I think a growing impatience. We see it sometimes in very silly ways and very trivial ways, like when you're waiting in a lineup of traffic to get somewhere, or when we go through the McDonald's drive-thru and they don't get our instant order instantly, or sometimes even when we want something so badly that we rack up all kinds of debt so we can have it now. I think that's a prevalent thing within our culture, within our society, and I think we don't realize just how dangerous it is. How dangerous is the temptation to instant gratification in so many different ways. It really can impact our discipleship. It can impact our fellowship with God and one another. Sometimes we expect instant change in our lives when we come to faith or when we give our lives to Christ. And we don't realize that the journey of discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction, that it takes time. Or sometimes we pray about something. If we don't see an instant result, we get frustrated. Well, we tried prayer once and it didn't work. We don't understand that there's a timing that God has for our lives and a plan that he has in order to make us more and more into the image of his son. And sometimes we don't have that instant result. And so we can see how this temptation to instant gratification that's so prevalent in our society can actually harm our spiritual lives, harm our journey of discipleship. Really what Satan was doing in the wilderness with Jesus and what John is talking about here is the temptation to take a shortcut to satisfaction. Temptation to take a shortcut to satisfaction rather than to wait on God's timing. So there's one. There's one parallel temptation between the temptations of Jesus and what we find in 1 John. Here's another one. The second temptation uh, that John talks about is the craving of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And this reminds me of the time when Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple, Satan says to Jesus, look, look around you. All these people gathered around. There's about like an 800 foot drop. Why don't you jump off this thing? Because, you know, the angels won't let you perish. They'll protect you. Jump off it. Do 
do a, a, a flip or two and a triple sow cow and do a superhero landing on the ground, really nail it, that'll get people's attention. People will see with their eyes that you're putting on the show that they want. And when you put on that show, when you manage your image, when you manage the optics, they will absolutely follow you on the spot. I see that in our culture too. That idea of managing the outward appearances, managing what we can see, managing the optics, going for that which is so image-driven in our culture that we forget about the content of our character. And we see that, and that's a real temptation. We have to be reminded over and over again that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And that's, what we, that's why we have to guard against this kind of temptations, this lust of the eyes, this looking at the outward appearance. And so this societal value can really impact our fellowship, our discipleship as well. When we just give in to virtue signaling, when we just give in to keeping up appearances while inside we are hurting or in turmoil or in danger or in sin, all of that can really disrupt our fellowship with God. So the temptation here is to take a shortcut to fame, take a shortcut to success, and focus only on the external appearance and not focus on the content of our character. So that's the first two. The third one is this, the pride of life. And it reminds me of the time when Jesus is taken to a high mountain and, and Satan says to him, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. They can all be yours right now if you just bow down and worship me. I'm not sure it was really Satan's to give, but that's part of temptation. Temptation is a lie. And when Satan spins a lie, we have to see through the lie to the truth. But Satan tries to spin this to Jesus. And the temptation is really, take control now. Seize power now. There's a Greek word that's used here to talk about the pride of life. Elizonia. And uh, to the ancient moralist, the Elizon was the person who claimed possessions and achievements which did not belong to him in order to exalt himself. You ever see that in the workplace? You see it maybe even in our neighborhoods. You see it even in our lives when sometimes we take the credit or take possessions or take a position that doesn't actually belong to us. You see, Satan was saying to Jesus, take a shortcut. Take a shortcut to power. You don't need to go through the cross. Jesus knew that God was going to exalt him and give him a name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth would bow. But that part of the exaltation would have to come after the cross. And Satan is saying, don't go through the cross. Take it now. Seize power. Exalt yourself. And so we always have to be reminded of this cultural value, this kind of pretentious egotism of wanting to exalt ourselves, wanting to make ourselves more important than we are, instead of allowing God to exalt us in due time, when it's in his time. We're reminded in Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't take that shortcut to power. So seeking instant gratification, putting on a show, seizing power. These are the ways 
that we show that we're falling in love with the world. That's some of the ways. I'm sure you could think of many more. But the point that John wants to make is beware of that because they harm our fellowship. They disrupt our confident faith in God. So why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we simply indulge in our physical desires? Why, why shouldn't we just put on a show? Why shouldn't we seize power when the opportunity arises? Why shouldn't we love these values that are so prevalent in the world around us? I mean, other people live by them and they seem to be doing very well sometimes. Why shouldn't we live by them also? Well, the passage at the end goes on to say this. We shouldn't love these things because they are not from God and they will not last. They will not last. Don't attach yourself to something that is not going to last. Passage says this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. So don't attach yourself to these things. When I was uh, studying in Scotland at college, during the summertime, I had opportunity to work in the north of Scotland. And we were working with some churches. We were doing some uh, big tent evangelistic campaigns, uh, working in kids' ministries and camps. But in between our busy schedule, uh, we were asked to actually do some repairs on the old mission building, which was just really a simple building, a simple gable roof on it. And part of the repair had to do with repairing one side of the roof. So my friend decided he had a brilliant idea. The roof was fairly steep, and so he decided to tie a rope around his waist to get onto the opposite side of the roof, throw the rope over the uh, peak of the roof, and then attach it to an object on the ground. And that way, if he was going along his repairs on the roof and he slipped, he wouldn't fall very far because he had the rope. There was only one problem. The object that he attached the other end of the rope to was the bumper of a car. And at one point, my friend is working away on the roof and he hears the car start up and he has to scramble to the top and yell at the driver. Thankfully, the driver heard and did not drive away in the car with my friend tethered to the bumper. Can you imagine it? We laughed for weeks about it. 30 years later, I'm still telling the story and laughing about it, but I'm very glad that he didn't get carried away uh, by the, the car and the rope. It's a reminder to us not to tether our lives to those things that are going to move or going to go away. William Barclay says this, the man who attaches himself to the world's aims and the world's ways is giving his life to things which literally have no future. All these things are passing away and none has any permanency. But the man or the woman who has taken God as the center of his life has given himself to the things which last forever. The man of the world is doomed to disappointment. The man of God is certain of lasting joy. You know, if we want to cultivate a confident faith in troubled times, we cannot be tethered to the things of our world. We cannot be in love with the world. Our lives need to be secured. They need to be anchored in God. That's how we know we will have eternal lives. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful today for all the work that you did on our behalf in sending Jesus, your son, to die for us. 
And we want to say that is enough. We trust completely and wholly in what you have done. Father, help us to break our attachment to the things of this world. We know that you've provided so many things for us to enjoy, so many things for us to explore, and yet you warn us not to hold on too tightly to any of these things because they're ultimately passing away. So we pray that you'd help us to hold on to you just as you hold on to us so firmly through these times. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.